Good morning, marketers, and welcome to the Yippie Market Podcast, brought to you by Mountaintop Data. We are the only podcast that markets the shit out of it. I'm your host, Sky Cassidy, and today we'll be talking with Nancy Harhuck of HBT Marketing about behavioral science in marketing. Sounds boring? It's not. Trust me. Um, trust me. It's probably the worst thing to say there. Anyway, Nancy's uh, passionate about the... You'll tell me, Nancy, if that was a terrible thing to say or not. Passionate about the uh, impact of behavioral science on marketing. She's the chief creative officer at uh, HBT Marketing and a, uh, a marketer's marketer, as they say. She's named one of the 10 most fascinating people in B2B marketing, which strangely enough, I nominated myself to be named one of the 10 least interesting people in B2B marketing. And the um, the body that decides that stuff responded with, what, who are you? I said, perfect, nailed it. All right, Nancy, thank you for coming on the show today. Sky, thank you so much for having me. So uh, behavioral science and marketing, we have a whole lot to cover. Um, you have a book out on behavioral science and marketing. I hate reading. That was a confession for me. Uh, so I was like, yeah, send me a blurb. And then I saw a little more information on the book. And I said, please send me a physical copy. I'll actually read it. And so I've got your copy here of using behavioral science and marketing. Thank you for sending that. Uh, love the way it's structured. What caught my eye and we will get to the actual contents and stuff. This isn't a, an infomercial for, for the listeners. Um, but what caught my eye was you have blurbs on the book from Ann Handley and Mark Schaefer. And I was immediately so jealous and saying, wait a second, how come I'm not more familiar with Nancy? If she's got blurbs from these two people, the pinnacle of B2B marketing. Um, so congratulations on the book. Congratulations on the, on the attention. Really want to dig into it. But uh, how how do you get both of those people to to promote your book, the same book? I, I think you get really, really lucky. Is uh, is what it is. Um, you know, they're they're both fantastic. I, uh, a number of people who I really admire in the in the business uh, actually were nice enough to provide blurbs. Robert Cialdini, Roger Dooley, Jeff Chrysler, uh, as well as uh, as you mentioned, Mark and Anne and. Um, I think I, I just got really, really lucky, but they agreed to take a look at an advanced copy and they liked it well enough so that uh, they provided an endorsement. Uh, you know, Mark said it's uh, a tour de force, the most intelligent marketing book I have read in years. I, I was ready to burst into tears. I was so happy when he sent me that. Let me tell you. You were like, I would have put it on there if he just said, it's all right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I still got on there. <laughs> you know, I looked at it. That would have been fine. <laughs> yeah. The cover's pretty, he says. It's a book. Um <laughs> that sounds like a comedy book. They have things like that. It's a book, raves New York Times. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so the book. I think the content of it, behavioral science and marketing, is enough of a, a niche kind of for marketing. It's a fascinating niche. It's one of those things we spoke a little bit before the call or, or previously about this episode, and it kind of scares me. Behavioral science and marketing. It's kind of like the. I don't know, decade, 1980s and 90s when it'd be like, oh, subliminal messaging, you know, they're, they're putting words underneath the uh, sound and the TV commercials that that's, that's why you wake up in the middle of the night with a Coke in each hand or something like that. Um, it seems like mental manipulation kind of. So I am going to want to get into that a little bit, like how much of this is a uh, Jedi, you know, Jedi mind tricks uh, within marketing. Um, but let's start with wherever you want to start, basically. Um, we've got behavioral science and marketing. You've got the book. Um, what, what would you like to start with? Well, you know, I, I think a good place to start might be to just level set everybody in terms of, you know, what the topic is, because you mentioned like uh, science, it sounds boring. And uh, and it certainly can. It, it can sound a little intimidating. You're like, behavioral science, what, you know, what is this all about? Do I need test tubes? Do I need lab coats? You know, what's going on here? But um, behavioral science really simply is just the, the study of how people behave and more specifically, how they make decisions. And behavioral scientists have spent a lot of time and effort studying how people make decisions. And what they found is very often... Um, they rely on decision-making shortcuts and it's a way to conserve mental energy because if people tried to weigh every bit of information that came their way, it would just take too long. It wouldn't be possible. They'd never get around to making any decisions. So what's happened is, you know, over the 
centuries and centuries and centuries, humans have developed these automatic, instinctive, reflexive behaviors, these, these hardwired behaviors. And what happens is we cruise along for life on autopilot. When we encounter a certain situation, we'll just default to the hardwired behavior, giving it little, if any, thought. Now, does this mean that people never make well-thought-out, well-considered decisions? Absolutely not. They, they certainly do. But it means that very often uh, when you're trying to decide maybe you know what to read or who to trust or when to buy, you're influenced by these, these decision def defaults, these decision-making shortcuts. It makes life easier for you. It makes it easier for you to get through life and, uh, and kind of to focus your mental energy on the, the things that you really need to focus on. So, so that's what behavioral science is. And, and it's great for marketers because if we're aware of it, if we, you know, if we know about these uh, decision defaults, we can actually use what science has proven about human behavior in order to influence it, in order to make it easier for people to do what they want to do. I like how you say what they want to do. You're not saying <laughs> it's, it's um, it, it makes me think of uh, like when you're driving and you've driven the same route to work so many times and you're on autopilot and you're like, wait a second, the first day somebody drives, think mentally of what that's like. And then driving to work for the 10,000th time, you you could be you could probably sleep drive it and then also when if you were to take an intersection and make both lights green cars would just run into each other like wait can't they see the other car coming why would you not somebody on their first day of driving because they're making every one of those decisions probably wouldn't crash but the person who's been doing it for 20 30 40 50 years is going to crash because you just see the green and you're not you're not checking everywhere for everything and making every decision is it kind of like that kind of thing you've again you've programmed in just to simplify your your decision making yeah, no, that's that's a really good example. You know, you're talking about kind of muscle memory there, where you know we we drive the same route, you know, every day, day in and day out, and uh, and so we don't even really need to consciously think about it. And uh, there's a there are a lot of those kind of uh, mental energy saving shortcuts that humans rely on. That is absolutely one of them. Um, humans are actually hardwired to notice the new and novel. So, you know, from a from a marketing perspective, that means that if something says new, now, introducing, announcing, finally, soon, discover, you know, those are all great words that the eye just goes to. And, and the reason for this is um, the, the human brain seeks out the new and novel because when we find something that's new, it releases dopamine. Dopamine is a feel-good chemical. And so as a result, we're constantly jonesing for that next new thing. So we're, you know, we're constantly looking for the next new thing. When we think we find it, we get that release of dopamine. So, you know, uh, you know, back in our caveman days, it was very important for us to notice things that were new because they could be good things or they could be threatening things. So we, we kind of had to pay attention. All these years later, we're still hardwired to to seek out the new and novel, to look for things that are new, to notice things that are new. And, you know, some so uh, from a marketing perspective, it helps us when we put the word new in front of something or instead of saying, you know, learn about my new book, we say discover my new book and discover sounds like fun, learn learn sounds like you're back in second grade math class and you really want to be outside on the you know the playground at resource but you were a recess rather but you were stuck inside you know doing math problems so um it's you know it's it's little things that the that the mind just kind of gravitates to and it it just helps us save time and energy you know another one is the idea of commitment and consistency once people make a decision, they like to remain consistent with it when future opportunities arise. And uh, so what that means to marketers is if we can get someone to say yes once, they're more likely to say yes a second time, a third time, a fourth time. What happens is the mind is like, oh, right, I vetted that company. You know, I already checked them out. I decided that I like them. So when they've come back to me, I don't have to go through that whole process again. I just go, oh, right, they're the ABC Corporation. I trust them. You know, I, I, I'll agree like with the, them to say. Um, the freemium model kind of. You're the hardest part is getting the foot in the door, which is all of marketing. And then you're saying, okay, great. Now that you've tried this for a month free, we're already known. You can, you don't have to go through all the uh, legal work and mental stuff in order to make the decision. You said something that um, the something stuff being, being different and new uh, again, with the driving analogy, I just think, Oh, you're driving along on autopilot, but if the bridge is out, then you're hardwired to notice that, so you don't, uh, so you know, so you don't drive off a cliff, um, type of a thing. So the the novel and new is really we're programmed to notice that as well. That's kind of the default, and then there's autopilot, all this stuff. But so many things get autopiloted over time that the new stuff actually becomes um, less and less frequent, I guess, over time in our lives. 
Yeah, uh, so, uh, you know, we're, we we do seek out things that are new. Um, there's also something called the von Restorff effect, which is the idea that we notice things that are uh, different than their surroundings. So the bridge being out would be kind of a good one because usually the bridge is there. All of a sudden, there's this big, you know, gap, you know, where it used to be, and we notice that because it's like that gap wasn't there yesterday. So we're kind of tuned into noticing things that are, you know, different from their surroundings, things that have changed, either something that was added or something that was taken away. And again, when you go back to, you know, our early ancestors, that was a very important skill to have, to notice when something was different. You know, now we're hardwired to notice it. And in the case of the bridge being out, it's also a very important skill to have. But from from a less life and death perspective, um, you know, say you've, I don't know, you've opened up your inbox and you're scanning through your emails, right? There are going to be certain subject lines that will jump out at you because they look a little different. You know, if nine out of 10 of them don't have emojis, for example, and one of them does, well, you're going to pay attention to the one that has the emojis. In fact, it's been shown to get a double digit lift and opening rate for that reason. So it's well, just- it did. But now that everybody, every marketer heard that and they all put emojis in, it's like, oh, if you do, so you have to do the different which is constantly right. changing because we're always trying to do whatever is, you know, it's the um, the emo kid trying to be different until everybody is that. And then it's not cool anymore. And you have to be a different, different. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. When no one was using them, they stood out. If everyone is using them, well, then you're just going to blend in, you know? So that's, right. that's one of the things you have to kind of balance, uh, you know, marketing best practices and behavioral science against what everyone else is doing. When everyone's a nonconformist, then the conformist gets the attention and because uh, they're the nonconformist. Uh, there you go. <laughs> okay. So the, is the general principle on this to be different and and, it's, and is it kind of like a do this? And I, I guess by saying this, I, I mean the, the book and the, the practice of behavioral science and marketing in general. Um, is it to be different and then... Uh, the book is there a lot of do this not that because you've already said a couple things like oh you use this word instead of that word in a subject line and and, and whatnot yeah well so there's um we have 17 chapters and about 25 different behavioral science principles that are my go-to behavioral science principles for marketing. You know, if you talk to behavioral scientists, they'll tell you they've documented, you know, over a hundred of these automatic behaviors, but I've got about 25 that are my go-to. And some of them are, you know, be different. Like if you stand out from, from the stuff around you, people will notice you and remember you. So that's a good thing to do. Um, and sometimes you want to be different, but sometimes you don't want to be different. For example, if you're a new company or you've got a new product, or maybe you're, you know, you're, you're an established company, but you're moving into new territory, then uh, you're maybe a little bit risky for somebody. You know, the audience is considering you, but they're like, I don't know these people or I don't know this product. And in a case like that, you know, saying how different you are and saying, you know, you can be the first one to try this may not be the thing that you want to do. You know, you might want to offer some kind of reassurance. You might want to let people know that even though this product is new to them or even though this company is new to the area, they can trust it. And you know, so maybe you want to tap into something called social proof. And that's the idea that when people aren't certain what, of what to do, they look to others, particularly people like themselves, and they follow their lead. So maybe you want to have some testimonials that say, you know, I used to think, uh, you know, you know, all, all coffee mugs were the same. Who cares where you bought yours from? And then I bought mine from such and such a company. What a difference it was, you know? Right. Um, or you might want to use the authority principle where, you know, you're brand new, but you're endorsed by the American Dental Association or something. And or like uh, Ann Hanley and Mark Schaefer or something like that. Or Ann Hanley and Mark <laughs> Schaefer, exactly. You know, where it's like, well, those guys know what they're talking about. Therefore, I can trust them. So I feel a little bit more confident and, and comfortable buying Nancy's book, you know, but whatever it turns out to be. So sometimes you do want to be different. Other times you want to suggest, oh, no, a lot of other people have already done what I'm asking you to do. Or this seems like it's a, a safe bet, a smart money bet to do what I'm asking you to do. So it's, it's just really kind of understanding the the, um, the decision-making shortcuts people use and the environments when they're going to be most applicable. You know, in some cases, people are going to want to be different. They're going to want to have something no one else has. It, it feels great to have access people don't have or information that, that you have first before anyone else. In other cases, it feels a lot better to be, you know, part of the crowd, to, to you know, be doing mm. something that other people already have decided is a safe thing to do. And that probably depends a lot on who the target audience is and what the product is. I mean, I know some products, brand recognition and trust is really important. Other products are, it, is it, how cool is it? Is it new or is it old kind of? Some companies brag that, you know, it's the newest thing and other companies brag that they've been doing this for 50 years. Um, so it seems like a lot of these 
principles maybe can go both ways. It's not like a one size fits all. You've got a ton of them here, but maybe any given company, only a couple really apply or you have to, there's two ways to apply it. And then some, some companies need to apply one side of the equation and the other is the other. So I, I think it's context specific. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it, you can, you can look at what it is you're trying to do, um, and look at the, like the barriers to, to that behavior being adapted. So, you know, you, you want your prospective customers to do X, Y might they not want to do X? And then you start to look at, uh, you know, the various behavioral science, uh, triggers that are available to you and say, all right, well, in this case, this one might be the one to test, you know, or a lot of times what I'll say to my clients is let's, you know, let's zero in on these three and let's see which one does the best for us. Um, but, uh, you know, what works for one person may not work for, for one company, I should say, may not work for another company because the context is different, because the, the buying barriers are different, because the, the product or the audience is different. Right. You're selling to people in their 50s versus people in their teens, probably different principles going to uh, come into play. Um, so you have a bunch of principles. I think that's correct me if I'm using the wrong words here. Uh, I think yeah. words are probably pretty important in this uh, episode. You've got a bunch of principles in your book. Uh, I'm going to read off a couple of them here. I'd love to go over a couple just so the listeners can get a general idea again of what the heck are we talking about with behavioral science and marketing? Other than, you know, Sky said Jedi mind tricks, but he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. He's not the guest. So what is this? But some of the principles, uh, reciprocity, choice architecture, magnetic middle, uh, emotion, framing, uh, information gap theory, uh, autonomy bias labeling availability bias scarcity like and it just goes on and on people like this book just has chapters that are like we're going to talk about this now we're going to talk about like scarcity most people are but a lot of these words i don't know I, i've been doing this for quite a while and some of them i haven't really i'd have to take some wild guess at what the heck they mean can you pick out a couple of your favorites and kind of give a little preview for the listeners of here's what this means and you know general of how it works uh, yeah, absolutely. What one I think one of the first ones you mentioned was the reciprocity principle. And that's really interesting. What behavioral scientists have found is human beings are kind of hardwired to answer in kind uh, when someone has done something for them. So, you know, as as a species, we're actually very civil people. So if someone does something for us, we like to return the favor. If if you and I were out for lunch and you picked up the tab, I'd think I've got to remember to pick up the tab next time we're out for lunch. Or um, there was a a researcher, his name is Philip Kuntz from uh, Brigham Young University, and he ran this experiment where he sent Christmas cards to random strangers and over 20% of the people sent him a card back, right? Can you imagine you get this card and you're like, you know, honey, do you know Philip Kuntz and his, no, I don't know who they are. It's like, neither do I, but what do you do? You pull out a card and you send it back because that's the nice thing to do. And so what behavioral scientists have found is once someone gives you something or does something for you, even if you didn't ask for it, you, you kind of feel like you want to even the score. So uh, I have a, a great B2B example for you. Um, one of my clients was uh, Nationwide Financial, and they have you know financial advisors that go out and sell their funds. And some of these financial advisors had stopped selling their funds a year or more ago. And uh, so the company said, well, we want to you know, we reactivate them. And you might think to yourself, well, that's kind of a tall order. They stopped over a year ago. They didn't just stop last month or a few months ago, it was, it was over a year ago. And uh, they said, well, we want to reactivate them. We want to send them something that gets them reactivated. So I said, all right, we're going to use the reciprocity principle. And we sent them an email that said, uh, you know, hey, Sky, watch your mailbox. We have a gift we picked out especially for you. It's arriving by US Mail, you know, this week. A couple of days later, this box shows up. In the box is a framed New Yorker cartoon. And uh, it had something to do with selling retirement funds. And it was cute and it made you laugh. And it was, you know, nice quality. But the caption had the individual financial advisor's name in it. So mine would have my name, yours would have your name. It was framed. And, uh, and it had a note from the, you know, the wholesaler saying, hey, would love to catch up, let you know what's new, find out how you're doing. So, you know, it's a cool gift. It's got your name and you know, it's a New Yorker cartoon with your name in the caption. You hang it on your office wall and now it's top of mind. And you think, ah, oh, geez, you know, I didn't ask them to send me this, but maybe, maybe I should sell some of their phones. They picked up an extra 68 million in incremental revenue off of that one promotion, just using the idea of, of give to get, of reciprocity. So now uh, I'd like to say for the listeners, they probably could have run a campaign that didn't act on reciprocity and just ask people like, hey, do business with us again. And they might have got half of that or 70% of that or something like that. But that's a huge number. So I always see statistics like that and people say, Oh yeah, people who start using XYZ see this increase in 
I say, well, of course, because people using it are actively, it's a self-selecting crowd kind of. They're already customers, they're gonna hit them up. So yes, they saw an increase, but only a percentage of that I'm sure was due to this technique versus any other. But I still love the technique. Um, and I especially love, not only does it have the reciprocity part in it, but it also has the, and you mentioned this, just the reminder. They didn't give them something they're gonna eat and it's gone or something that, that easily goes. They gave them something that's designed to be put in a public place where who cares if anyone else is gonna see it, they are going to see it regularly and will always remind them of that brand and that interaction. And I love, that's my favorite type of brand marketing is the, the something people are gonna see every day now. Sure. I mean, can you imagine like the phone rings and, you know, it, it's like, I don't want to take the call, but it's like, you're looking at that, you know, framed New Yorker cartoon with your name in it. And you're like, I should talk to the person, you know, I should talk to the guy, I should talk to the woman. I mean, how, you know, how do you say no when you're, you've got this gift, you didn't ask for it, but you've got it, you know. Constant um, reminder. Yeah. It is. It, it was constant reminder. Um, and, you know, another great example is the idea of the magnetic middle. And what behavioral scientists have found is for the most part, for the most part, people don't like to be way out on the bleeding edge and they don't like to be lagging way behind. They they feel comfortable in the middle. It just feels safer. It just feels like the right place to be. So I was doing some work for a client. They sold uh, disability insurance to dentist. So it's very hard to get anyone to buy disability insurance, but once you get someone to buy it, they really don't care to revisit it. And so these dentists had actually bought it. Boom. That was it. That you know, they checked it off their list. They didn't want to revisit. But the thing about disability insurance is every few years you should revisit it because your practice might have grown or your family might have grown. You probably have more to protect or possibly less, but it's smart to revisit. And this particular company had sent out, you know, message after message, kind of explaining in a very rational way that that's what you should do and it totally makes sense. And, and they had marginal success. And uh, then they turned the assignment over to us and we said, all right, we're going to kind of fine-tune the messaging and we inserted a graph and at one end of the graph was zero dollars and at the other end of the graph was three million dollars so the left end the least you could possibly have zero dollars the right end three million the most the company sold and then in every case we had a little mark that said you are here and it was always left of center we always chose people who had less than 1.5 million dollars did we expect that they would run out and increase their policy to three million dollars no but we thought we would edge them closer to the center and compared to the previous uh, uh messages that they had sent out we got a 459 percent increase in sales this is people dentists actually buying more disability insurance well nobody and, wants uh, to be below average <laughs> nobody wants to be below average that's exactly it and you know you could have explained you know you know, five different really good reasons why it would make sense to make sure that your protection was up to, to snuff. But just looking at that graph and in one one quick glance, you're like, exactly what you said, Sky, I'm, I'm below average. This doesn't feel right to me. And so I'm going to take action as a result. So it was, a, it was an interesting application of the behavioral science principle of the magnetic middle. Um, Into a visual, though, the combination of coming together. And so I guess, so your company, HBT Marketing, did this I love that kind of marketing. It's what uh, I was, I started out as a photographer, believe it or not. But what I was interested in photography wasn't Ansel Adams and stuff like that. Um, I like to advertise in photography. And I realized, luckily, I was a bad photographer. Um, but that wasn't even the part I was really interested in. I like coming up with the concepts. When you look at a magazine, and you see a visual ad that works, something like that. Now, that's not an image, that's not a photograph, but it's an image. And somebody had to come up with that concept and say, this is going to work and here's why it's got the psychology in it it's got the marketing the information they need and the fact that it's a visual and it just all comes together to be so effective in conveying the message in a way like you said it makes a lot more sense to have all the you know here's 10 reasons why or something like that and they can see them all there but that that quick hit of the visual and how effective that is that's awesome so that's yeah. something that your company had uh, put together that is something it was uh, something that I worked on. It was it was not HPT marketing. It was the previous incarnation wow. of my company, just to to be uh, absolutely accurate. But I worked on it, so um, and I do. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I do use the example because it's it's a nice uh, it's a nice way to just kind of explain how magnetic metal works. Um, it's interesting you talked about photography and uh, behavioral scientists have found a couple of things uh, regarding uh, photographs. They found that when you have a photograph accompanying your text. Uh, people have a tendency to believe the text more. So uh, they ran an experiment. It was, I think it was something like uh, turtles are deaf. 
and you either read the statement or you read the statement and it was accompanied by a photograph of a turtle. Now, when you think about it, when you look at a picture of a turtle, you really can't tell whether the thing can hear or not. But the, the mere presence of the photo lent credibility to the copy, which was kind of interesting. Um, another um, another finding about photographs is if you're doing like a before and after shot or a cause and effect shot, the closer the two pictures are to each other, the closer the relationship there appears to be and the the stronger the messaging will be as a result. So, you know, rather than running like a, I don't know, a double truck magazine ad where one photo is on the left margin and the other is on way over on the other right margin or, you know, top of your website page, bottom of it, you want them to be as, as close as possible because uh, people just just infer that the closer they are to each other, the, the tighter the relationship is. When you first said closer, I thought the more similar you mean physically the images being like on the same page if you put them obviously on two different pages physically close i always i also feel like when that first came out you could have incredibly different pictures and people would be like whoa that's amazing but it's been used so much back to the hey once everybody's doing it it's pointless you got to do something different now i think if you wanted to do it you'd almost want pictures that didn't have nearly as much a difference so people would actually believe it or it wouldn't be this extreme like hey those aren't even the same people come on i'm not an idiot or nice photoshop job type of a thing um, some of them you see and you're like why didn't you just do a drawing that's so obviously terrible looking with one person all pasty and frowning and the other person with their hair done and and uh, you know all tanned up and stuff like that um I, I remember seeing some videos online of people doing like the two minute before and after photo where it was like oh yeah i, I did all this workout and now but here's what I actually did. You know, I just slathered on some tanner, flexed, <laughs> did three push-ups, smiled, put some hair gel in. It's like, oh, all right. wow, yeah, that was that was six months of work. That's great. No, no, that was that was three three minutes. <laughs> three minutes, um, yeah. Before and after. Okay, so we've hammered a couple. Or not hammered. We lightly dusted on. I guess I'd say a couple of these principles. Um, any others? Uh, um, yeah, you know what you you had mentioned emotion, and I think uh, you know if if it's okay, I'll talk uh, just a couple of minutes about that because um, emotion is really important. But a lot of times in B two B, we give it a, a short shrift. You know, we think it's you know B two B marketing. We're dealing with an educated professional, you know, business audience, and so you know they're you know we should really focus on the facts and the reasons why and the speeds and the feeds and the uh, you know the the numbers. And while there's well, a, a the role, facts are half of B, okay half of Many B2B marketers are not educated and professional. We're no different than consumer market. In fact, they're ahead of it. They're probably more educated and professional than the B2B side. Just because it's B2B, don't think we're professional is what I'm saying. We're very unprofessional. Well, well, you know what? You, I, I think you're you're touching on a point, which is people are people, whether they're at home or at the office, whether they're at home or at work. And we make decisions the way people make decisions in a very human way. And that is based on emotion. People actually decide for emotional reasons and then later justify their decisions to themselves or to anyone else with rational reasons. So from a marketing perspective, whether you're doing B2B or B2C, you want both the emotional and the the rational because that's what's going to help people decide. There was a um, researcher named Antonio Damasio. He studied humans who had sustained injury to the parts of their brain that controlled emotion. And what he found was these people were incapable of making even the most basic decision, a decision like, what would you like for lunch today? They would go around and around and around, flip-flop, flip-flop, flip-flop. They couldn't even land on what they wanted to eat for lunch that day. We really do need to to uh, tap into the emotional parts of our brains to make decisions. I was doing some work for a client that made um, or that, that marketed, I should say, business intelligence software. So there's a you know pretty serious, pretty heavy B two B topic. It you know it basically uh, what it uh, allowed you to do is bubble up data from disparate databases so that you can get a full 360 view. Because a lot of times you've got some data locked away in one database, you got other you know other data in another database, and uh, you know you. you you can't get at it. And this product allowed you to see it all. And so if you think about it, if you're going to advertise a product like that, you can take a few different approaches. You know, you could kind of talk about what it does. Like, all right, you have a problem. We have the solution. You can't see all the data. We have a product that allows you to see it. You could do that. Or you could do one that, you know, that says, hey, look, we're going to we're going to um, help you avoid loss because we know that loss aversion is really pretty powerful in, in marketing. You know, marketers talk about gains and there's nothing wrong with gains, but people are actually twice as motivated to avoid the pain of loss. So we could have said, you know, if you don't have all the data, you're not going to be able to make a good decision. And as a result, you're probably going to lose money, right? And then there was a third approach that we could take. And that was one that was very emotional. And what we thought we would do is we would lead with how the target feels 
being asked to make decision upon a decision upon decision, knowing they don't have access to all the information. So we ran lines like, um, you know, the delete button for that voice in your head, because, you know, when you're making these decisions, you know, you're constantly thinking, did I make the right one? You know, what, what if I miss something? You know, it's, it's just kind of, you know, or the antacid for a diet of tough decisions, because you, you got agita, you're trying to, you know, and it's not just your job on the line, it's the, you know, the job of, of the employees, it's the reputation of the company, you know, it could be legal liability. And, um, we actually took all three of those approaches into research. And while they all resonated with the target market, uh, the one that did the best was the emotional one. It got a 13% lift in purchase intent based on that. And uh, I think it's because the emotion really spoke to people. It's like, that company gets me. They know what my life is like. They know what my job is like, what I'm grappling with. And if they understand me so well, then they probably have a product that I should take a look at. Mm. So I think emotion can be, you know, when we think about B2B marketing, we think about behavioral science, emotion is really pretty, pretty key to, to weave in there. And I guess if they're making those decisions already and you're going to the before and after, it's like on one side, you have a Ouija board and the other side, you have the client's product. And like, which are you using to make decisions? Because they know they're making decisions based on a whim on their gut and that they don't go right as often as they'd like. And they really wish they had more information. Um, but yeah, when you don't, you still have to act and make and make the decision. I, I love that. That's great. So the emotion part, very interesting, is what would you say going off the fears on that, going off their pain, a little bit of both? Well, you could, you could, I mean, it, emotion is what drives the decisions and there are lots of different emotions. You know, it could be, you know, it could be fear. It, it could be um, feeling safe. It could be relief, the feeling of relief. It could be, you know, the, the pride of bringing something like this to the company so that now the decisions would be, you know, that much better. And you were the one who introduced it. There are any number of different emotions that could be at play. You know, I think in this particular one, it, it was just feeling like, oh my gosh, somebody understands my world. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to be better because of this product. You know, I'm going to be able to do what it is I came to this job to do. I'll have the confidence, you know. I suppose it's an important thing to point out too. I feel like we get lost, or at least I do uh, get lost in the conversation sometimes is all that's trying to be done with all these techniques. It isn't, we talk about the end result of sales, but that all flows down from the marketing job of a foot in the door. So the technique, sometimes people use a technique that is going to help, they think it's going to help them close the deal and they lose sight of the fact that in the marketing stage, you're not, you don't need a deal closing technique. You need a foot in the door technique. You need an introduction technique. Now you, you need a, the, the, the pickup line is what you're looking for here, which is a, a terror. You need to not use it. Something that would actually work as a pickup line. You need an introduction. You need something to get them to start talking to you. And then the, here's 10 reasons why I'm sure comes up sometime in the process, but that initial interaction you know can't be a proposal not like what's the best you know proposal to come up with for this stranger no you need a foot in the door an introduction is all you're looking to do is get them to start talking to you um so i imagine that is a huge part of all these techniques you have in the in the book are not just which ones to use but but when and in what stage in the process uh, i'm sure some of them like, hey, here's one you could use to start and then you could use this later and this comes in here and this comes in there type of a thing. I don't know. I'm starting to get scared. It seems like there's so many choices. So, uh, no, no, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, you know, a lot of times we think about the end goal being like closing that sale, but there are a lot of little decisions that ladder up to that. You know, you're not going to, get to the point where you can even ask for the sale unless, you know, you back way up and somebody has opened your email or they've watched your video or they've, uh, ex you know, answered your phone call, accepted the invitation to a webinar, you know, they've agreed to meet with you. I mean, there's all of these, you know, relatively small and then escalating decisions that have to be made before you can even get to the point where you can then say, all right, now would you, you know, would you consider doing business with me? And, um, these behavioral science principles can be used at, at various stages of the funnel. Some of them can be used in, in, you know, the same, you know, some of the same ones can be used in different places in the funnel, but you just use them differently. But, but the idea is to be, you know, thinking about, all right, what's going on in my prospect's head right now? And what do I need to overcome it? At the very beginning, it might be, how do I just get them to pay attention to me? How do I stand out so they even notice me and know that I exist, you know? And then further down, it might be, how do I get them to, to, 
believe that I'll deliver on what I say I will, how, you know, I can get them to trust me and, and to, to feel that my product is a good choice. But, um, you, you know, you can, you can think about what it is someone doesn't want to do and then start to look for the, the right behavioral science principle or trigger to, uh, to introduce. And then it seems like also frequently there's not, there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer. Like a lot of these, these principles could, you basically have a, a toolbox with many tools that can work in a lot of situations. We'd say, oh, what do we want to do today for a campaign? Uh, we could use this. We could use that. It isn't. It isn't like there's only ever one solution. You have to find the exact right combination to to crack into somebody's uh, awareness here. Um, so, one thing that I want to get back to the very beginning. I mentioned this stuff always scares me. The whole like hypnosis of the person, because there are marketers who, anytime you give them a tool, they'll use it. Uh, inappropriately. They'll use it to manipulate. They'll use it to sell a product that people shouldn't actually be buying or two people that shouldn't be buying it, that kind of thing. Um, so there's that side, but then there's this other, this other angle too, of using these kind of, using these kind of processes because there's some sort of, of um, working with them mentally to get them more receptive to your message, let's say. How do you do that with prospects without getting them to feel manipulated? Because there's certain techniques you can use. I always say like, hey, you want people to open the email? Just great. Subject line is I found your dog. Everyone who has a dog is going to open that email. Now, none of them are going to buy from you because they'd be pissed when you're just like, ha ha, now that you've opened it, here's my sales pitch. Um, so you have that kind of dichotomy where it's, okay, if, you're, if your goal is to get them to take this step, it has to also lead to all the next steps. And there's lots of ways you can manipulate somebody. And then they're like, hey, you just, motherfucker, you just manipulated me. Uh, by the you can swear here if you want. Um, you just manipulated me. I don't ever want to do anything with you. So how do, how do marketers walk that line with these principles where they're making sure even if, you know, let's, let's say we're talking to the good, well-intended marketers who aren't going to intentionally manipulate people because there's plenty of those out there too. It's like the force, you have the dark side and the light side. Um, how do good marketers make sure they aren't manipulating people in a way that has a negative outcome for them? Sure. I mean, that's, that's a great question. And uh, it's, it's certainly one that I've heard before because, uh, you know, you start to hear about these decision-making shortcuts and, you know, you do think, well, are they Jedi mind tricks? Like, you know, so the, I think the first thing we have to accept is um, there's no silver bullet. You know, there's there's nothing that a marketer can do that's that's going to, you know, absolutely force everybody who doesn't want a product to buy a product. It's, it's not going to happen. But and I have proof. How many of the listeners have already bought her book? All right. If she, there was a silver bullet, you would have bought her book because she would have used it on you and it would be sold. <laughs> Obviously, that's right, honestly, yeah. No <laughs> there were silver. I wouldn't be writing a book. I'd be yeah. like retired on my private island someplace if I knew how to make people do exactly what I wanted them to. But, um, but I will say, behavioral science will increase the likelihood that you can get the response you're, you're looking for. If you think about it, first of all, there is no silver bullet. But w when you think about putting your marketing message out there, your product out there, you know, your audience, if you will, could could divide into three groups. There's that group of people who's like, oh my gosh, thank goodness I have been actively searching for this and now you have it. You know, this is exactly what I was looking for. I, I am so, I've literally been out here trying to find it and here you are, wonderful. And, and that's then it's not even marketing, like marketing gets no credit for that. That's all product. So, well, yeah, you know. Product, marketing just had to put it out there and everybody eats it up, okay. Boom. Right, right. And then there's going to be another group of people. And it's like, again, marketing gets no credit because there's going to be another group of people that says, uh-uh, no way, no how. Uh, you know, I like my way of doing things. I'm not going to change. Or I have my preferred provider. That's not going to change. Or, uh, you know, as much as I might like your product, I don't have the budget. You know, it's just there are some people it's just never going to work on. And then there's the middle group, which is arguably a little bit larger. And they're the people that maybe, maybe would do business with you. If they noticed your message, if the message resonated with them, um, you know, if, uh, you know, if they remembered your message and then if, if they acted on it. And that's where behavioral science comes in, because behavioral science can help you, uh, you know, make sure that your message gets noticed, make sure that you deliver it in a way that is relevant, make sure that it gets remembered. And, you know, you can encourage people to act on it. So, you know, we talked a little about about the Von Restorff effect that will help you make sure your message gets noticed, you know, because it's a little different than what, you know, whatever else is out there. Um, 
then we want to we want to get people to relate to it. Uh, one of the ways that you can do that is you can tap into something called availability bias, and that's the idea that um, when people are are trying to decide, you know, whether or not they need something, they think about, or, you know, any relevant example that they can recall. So they're, they're judging the likelihood of an example or likelihood of something happening based on how relevant an example they can recall. So if, if you never fly and you say to someone, how safe is it to fly? They think about all the news stories they heard about planes. They're like, wow, they all evolve crashes. I don't think it's all that safe to fly. The truth is it's, it is safe to fly. The news media just doesn't report about it because it's not news, you know? So well, when um, COVID first hit, a lot more people went out and bought survival gear because uh, they were like, it's way more likely I'm going to need this all of a sudden. <laughs> right, right. You know, so I, I have a, uh, I have a, a friend who um, she's doing some writing for a cyber security company and um, she had a great line. It was like, keep, keep your CEO off the evening news. So, you know what I mean? It's like, you, when you think about it, it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. Last night when I was watching the news, there was yet another CEO of another high profile blue chip company called on the carpet because of some kind of a, a data snafu, you know? And uh, it was like, I thought it was a great use of availability bias. You know, you might, you know, if you come knocking saying, oh, I had this new cybersecurity, it's like, yeah, yeah, we're all set. But when you tee it up that way, suddenly it cuts through and you're like, wow, maybe, maybe this is relevant, you know? And then, of course, you want to make sure that people remember the message. You can use storytelling for that. Uh, you know, you can use surprise. You were talking about uh, a really good photograph in an ad. One of the hallmarks of a really good photograph in an ad is one that catches you by surprise. It doesn't look like everything else you've seen out there. It makes you go, oh, wow. You know, uh, researchers at Glasgow University found that when you're surprised, it intensifies your emotion by about 400%. And that does two things. It makes you more likely to notice what surprised you and more likely to remember it. So, you know, we want to make sure that people remember our message. And then the fourth thing is we want to make sure people act on it. And, you know, you can do that by uh, providing a reason why, you know, here's why you should do. Social scientists have found that people are more likely to do what you ask them to do if you give them a reason why. Sometimes in marketing, we're like, well, you know, I told them about the product. I told them what the price was. I told them where they could get it. I'm done, right? My job is done. But it's like you want to close the loop, come full circle and say, you know, and here's why you should get it. You know, it would be helpful to your company. It, it will help you increase your profitability. It will, you know, help you get home early. What you know, Whatever that reason why is, um, you that, know, or maybe. I'm that sorry. drives me nuts, though, when I mean, not when that's the whole marketing pitch. There's so many companies I've seen where uh, a phrase you use to use something similar to this or like, like we help you be more profitable. And I'm looking at a company saying, what does this company do? Oh, they help me be more profitable. All right. I don't even know what industry they're in then. Like they could be just about anything. And if you don't give me, I need those 10 things. Like here's what we actually, like, there's so many companies I've had to ask that. Okay. But what do you actually do? Tell yeah, me what that you is... do. Don't just give me the, I don't need your big why or your, your funny this or that. Like what problem you solve? How, what do you do? And they're like, oh, we sell donuts. I'm like, okay, thank you. You can open with that. I would like a donut. Thank you. Please give me a donut. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. It's, there are times when I look at, at websites, particularly B2B ones, and, you know, they've got this, it's just filled with buzzwords and, you know, it's our solution will help you optimize your, you know, and I'm, but what do you do? I, you know, yeah. you don't know. So you're absolutely right. You need to be crystal clear about what it is that you're uh, offering and what it's going to do for you and, and how it can be used. Um, but then, you know, just kind of come full circle with that, you know, kind of wrapping it up, putting a bow on it by saying, you know, and here's the reason why here's, you know, here's the reason because, um, and what I, you know, what I say in the book is the behavioral science principles will help you make these things happen. They'll help people notice, relate to remember and act on your, on your product. And again, no magic bullet. It's, you're not going to be able to get everyone that you want, but for those people who might possibly want to do business, they got a lot going on. So you've got to get someone to pay attention. You've got to serve up the message in a way that's more brain friendly, in a way that's more likely to get remembered, and in a way that gets them to say, yes, I should act now. You know, maybe they're worried, you know, that it's, they don't know your company. And we talked a little bit earlier about social proof. You, know, you give them that comfort that they're looking for that will allow them to make the decision. So you say no magic bullet, but when I look at your book, what I see is 17 chapters of magic bullets. Like each one of these is a magic. It's not going to completely solve everything, but you've got a full banana clip of magic bullets here. Uh, we've really only touched on on the surface, obviously here, but I think the listeners get a general idea of of what's being uh, talked about here with behavioral science. Love have people like love having people like you. Uh, we'll we'll probably not edit that out um, on the show. 
because there's so many specific takeaways and then we can only touch on so many of them, but then there's just such the deeper content is so easy. It's there in a book for them. Uh, so thank you for coming on. We're getting close to the end here, but before we get so much in the conversation and I just completely leave the, uh, the outline here of getting the things like commercial breaks and, but I do want to touch on you and in your company a little bit more um, HBT marketing can you tell the audience a little bit about who you guys are, what you do? You've given some examples already, but. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, what we do is we focus on blending uh, behavioral science and marketing best practices. And behavioral science, if you if you add behavioral science to your marketing best practices, you will increase the likelihood that you see the, you know, the upshot and the KPIs that you're looking for. You'll, you'll, you will see the increase in engagement and response, uh, or you'll, you'll at least increase the likelihood, I should say, that you'll see the increase in engagement and response. And so what we do is we work with companies um, specifically with their strategy and their creative execution to infuse the behavioral science into their strategy and into their emails, their landing pages, their direct mail, their ads, their social posts to, you know, to increase that likelihood that they'll get the response they're looking for. And, you know, we work with a variety of clients, B2B, B2C, even some not, not-for-profit. And, uh, you know, companies come to us when they're either looking to um, improve the results that they had been getting, or they're looking to try something new, or they're looking for a second set of eyes to just review where they are and maybe give them some pointers on things to to try, things to test, to kind of, uh, you know, shore up what they're, what they're currently doing. So do you guys typically create the campaigns and create it for them, or are you um, adjusting their existing or, or both? We do both. I mean, most of the time, uh, clients will come to us because they want the actual campaign created, you know, write this email campaign, create this landing page, you know, do a series of ads. Um, but sometimes clients will come and say, look, here's what we're doing. What would you recommend we change, you know? And and so it's more of a consultative thing, but we'll take a look at uh, their their approach. We'll, we'll do an audit of their communications and we'll identify places where if they made this change or tested this approach or rephrased or reframed, uh, they might likely see uh, the, the uh, uplift that they're looking for. Nice. So sometimes you're writing the script and sometimes you're punching up the, the, the script they already have, kind of. Yeah. Um, so, Nancy, getting to you, you went to Boston University, majored in journalism. Um, a little different, but related to what you're doing now. How did you get from a journalism major into uh, into marketing and behavioral science? Yeah. <laughs> So I was a, a junior going into my senior year at BU and I kind of looked around. I was working for the school newspaper, the Daily Free Press and, and really enjoying it. And uh, But I looked around at, at my peers and I was like, I'll be good at this. I'll never be great at this. Some of these people, they're going to be they're going to be great. They're really going to be good at it. And I, I'll, I'll be OK, you know, and I, there are other things that I think I'd rather write. And it's taken me three years to figure it out. But I think there's something else I'd rather be doing. So I, my senior year, I scrambled and took, you know, any advertising class, corporate communications class, public relations class, like anything to, you know, I knew I wanted to write, but, you know, anything beyond journalism. And then I was, uh, I was lucky enough to um, get a job at Mullen Advertising uh, when I first got out of uh, um, college. Now they're a uh, IPG agency. They were a lot smaller back then, but uh, just kind of found my way into marketing and um, never looked back. I found that I was very well suited for it. But, um, you know, at the time I went into school, I thought if I wanted to write, it was either a great American novel or a newspaper. And I didn't think I had the great American novel in me, so it was going to be a newspaper. And once I got to school, I realized there were other things I could do. And the journalism training actually uh, was good for marketing because it teaches you to to write on a deadline. It teaches you to write concisely. It teaches you how to you know think about the end reader. So it was it was great training. It all Mark, worked out. Yeah, marketing needs more writers. That's uh, that's fantastic. It dawns on me if you're going to name your newspaper the Free Press, you kind of painted yourself in a corner because now you have a hard time charging for it. It's going to be very confusing for the audience if you don't give it away. Um, uh, it was yeah. a student run newspaper and it was given away. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I think it's all online now, but back in the day, we'd uh, we'd hand it out. It was all good, all free. Fantastic. So thank you for coming on, Nancy. Um, let me see. I want to uh, make sure we get all your info out. Of course, we have Using Behavioral Science and Marketing, your book. People can find that on Amazon, I imagine. Anywhere in particular they should go to get it? 
yeah, no, they can absolutely find it on Amazon. Uh, it's the number one new release in, in uh, business marketing and in, and in consumer behavior. They can find it at my publisher's uh, website, Kogan Page. Uh, you can also get it at Barnes & Noble, at, at Target. So uh, it's it's out there and uh, would, would love it if people were curious enough to pick it up. That'd be great. Awesome. And I would say just I, I have like flipped through it so far. The, the chapter structure is great because you can just pick a chapter here and read about this principle and pick a chapter there and read about that principle. Um, yeah, you so, can you can dive in and out. You don't have to read it chronologically. There's lots of bulleted takeaways. There's uh, every chapter has a, you know, don't make this mistake section. There's case studies and examples. And just it's really it's very accessible and very tactical. Awesome. Awesome. So you can also find Nancy on LinkedIn, of course, just, you know, type in Nancy Harhut and she'll pop up. Um, but we'll put links to all the stuff in the show notes as well. And then um, Twitter, do you want me to put your Twitter handle out or should we keep that? Yeah, Twitter is great. I'm on, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm out there. Yeah. She's uh, N Harhut on Twitter. And yeah, check out the show notes on ifumarket.com for, uh, for all this information on Nancy and uh, for more links to, to her. And please do share the show on social media. Uh, you know, give us good reviews and ratings. We always appreciate that kind of stuff. And um, on behalf of the If You Market team and Nancy Harhut of HBT Marketing, I'm always afraid I'm going to jumble those letters. I think I got it pretty good so far, though. Uh, thank you for listening to the If You Market podcast, where we believe if you market the shit out of it with behavioral science, they will come. Are you looking for new leads or always in need of quality contacts for your marketing campaigns? But list companies and online tools are the worst, right? Well, then you've got to check out Top Data Search by Mountaintop Data. At Mountaintop Data, we're a team of weird people that actually like getting our hands dirty with sales and marketing data, and we specialize in business contact information. We compile and maintain a database of tens of millions of targeted high-quality business decision makers with emails, phone numbers, mailing address, and all the information you need. Go to topdatasearch.com and request a free account with the promo code IYM1000, like if you market the podcast here, and get a free account with unlimited searches, no seat fees, and 1,000 free record download credits. That's topdatasearch.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.